So, uh, hey, just a few things I just want to get us ready for. We're about to move from, uh, from singing and, and kind of the response into hearing God's Word. And so just want to do a few things to get us there. Uh, but first of all, uh, ha- can we just get a little excited? That is the first ever Easter at the Church 1122. There you go. Man, we're excited. If, if you're a regular here, you've seen what God's been doing. If this is your first time, man, we are so honored that you would choose Easter to worship with us. In fact, um, in your bulletin, your handout, it's like 18 pages long. It's a small novel this week. Um, and the reason is this. We, want, we just want you to know how to connect. We call ourselves a dysfunctional family, which is just our way of saying that we love each other and we love Jesus. And you know, you, everybody, every family's got that crazy uncle that you love them. And sometimes it's tough to love, right? Well, there's a lot of crazy uncles in the room this morning. Uh, and if you can't find one on your row, you're, you are the crazy uncle on your row. And so we're super glad you're here. And um, we just, like I said, we just want you to know how to connect. We just want you to know how to connect because God is on the move here in a radical way. Um, since we've opened in September as a church, we've had uh, over 430 salvations. Like 430 people have surrendered their life to Jesus. We baptized about 30 or 40 in, in January. We are already at about 200 signups for our June baptism, and that number's growing. That's exciting seeing life change. Um, if you don't have a kid, you don't know how awesome and how crazy it is just on the other side of that wall. Um, we opened up New Gen and we thought we had enough space, but we have already outgrown our space. We added the dojo, right? So we got fourth and fifth graders like doing karate in the name of Jesus, like Jesus chopping instead of Judy chopping. And uh, we, we, we thought that was good and then God kept bringing more kids for us to disciple. And so this weekend we added a mobile home to the back corner Um, for two reasons. One, to make more room for kids. And two, we just wanted Pastor Joby to feel a little more comfortable, a little more at home. But we're we're decorating the place like Dillon, South Carolina. Um, And so we have added more places. We've launched disciple groups. We've got uh, over 60 disciple groups from sixth grade all the way up. And God is just moving in a radical, radical way here. We've got uh, 14 mission trips going off this year. In fact, several of the mission trips, uh, one of them has even overflowed, and we started another one. And, and we're just, it's, it's awesome to see what God's doing, that he is creating an opportunity for people to surrender to Jesus, to become disciple-making disciples, and transform communities. And we are, uh, like, let me just say it one more time. We are beyond, beyond humbled and honored that you would choose Easter morning to, to, to come and to uh, be a part of our family. There's one thing you'll notice in what we do when we gather. It's this. We want to glorify God through worship and word. We want to glorify God through worship and word. That's one of the reasons why we sing loud and we sing the music's loud because we just want, uh, we want to glorify God and sing as loud as we can to him. We want to sing to Jesus who's our savior. And then the other thing we want to do when we gather is we just want to dig into God's word. And so um, in just a second, Pastor Joby's going to come up here and walk us through uh, the last day of Jesus' life through the scriptures. Uh, and if you're a first time, let me just tell you, you're going to be blessed. This dude is an amazing communicator of the gospel. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because he's my boss. I listen, to, I listen to preachers for a living. That's what I do. And um, I, I, he's one of my favorite in the whole world. And so, um, yeah, come on, we love him. So uh, let's do this. Let's pray. Let's get our hearts ready. And then we're going to dig in the word a little bit. Lord, we love you. And God, we thank you that, that you love us in such a radical way. God, that the, the tomb is empty, and, and it's not just so one day we can go to heaven. You have already beaten death. 
You're already Lord over sickness. You're already in control over everything. And so, God, we just thank you, thank you, thank you that you chose to love us. You, Jesus, you chose to leave uh, heaven. You chose to step out of uh, that perfection of heaven and come into the life we live. And you lived among us and you were righteous and you earned you earned righteousness. And through the cross and through the grave, through your resurrection, you've given us your righteousness if we would surrender to you and follow you. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, 1122. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday. I am so glad you're here. Uh, grab your Bible. You're going to need it. I'm not going to tell you where to go yet. Uh, and then also probably your notes that you got on the way in. That might help you even a little more. Hey, if you're kind of an Easter-only person, um, then welcome. You and I have more in common than you realize. Uh, when I was growing up, I didn't go to church on Sundays. I went fishing because fish bite on Sunday too. Amen? And so uh, that's what I did. So the only sermons that I ever would go to, you know, you got to go on Easter, so that, that's what I did. And uh, so if that's you, then there's no guilt or just welcome. Uh, you just might want to hold on tight because you might pastor your own church one day. So let me just tell you that. So good luck with that. Um, this morning what we're going to do is uh, we're just going to talk about the event that changed all of human history. You see, Christianity is unique among all religions. It really is. It's the only I hate to even call it a religion, and, and disciples of Jesus don't like to be called religious because the gospel is actually really anti-religious. Um, but, but Christianity is unique because it's not based on faith and belief. Now, growing up, I kind of thought every different religion had their different beliefs, and what you believe determines which, which religion you're a part of. But, but Christianity is completely different because it's not based on just faith and belief. It's based on an historical event that changed everything. You see, the one thing that every religion has in common is that every major world religion and even the not-so-major ones, they all agree that something went wrong. Right? Amen? Like you, you go in the bookstore, and the largest section in the bookstore is self-help because even, the, uh, even a pagan world knows that you, you're jacked up, all right? And so they know they can sell you a lot of books. And so we all agree that something went wrong. And the difference between different religions is, well, what do you do to make that right? And so every other religion essentially says, well, it's something that you have to do. You obey the Ten Commandments. You, you align your chakra. You obey the five pillars. You've got to do something. And then along comes Jesus, and, and the gospel is totally different. The gospel isn't you do something good to earn God's favor. The gospel is that God has done something through the cross and the resurrection to rescue you. I mean, it's kind of like an Easter egg hunt. In every other religion, you've got to search for the Easter eggs because they're all lost. And if you find the golden egg, then congratulations, you win. But the gospel is you are the egg and that Christ is searching for you. And you lost yourself, and he is in pursuit of you. And in fact, if you were to look through, if you were to look through the Bible, um, the, the New Testament church, the early church, they only had one message. And the one message was not about believe and have faith. The one message of the church, the gospel, was that something happened. 
that God became a man, his name was Jesus, and he lived, he died, and he was resurrected from the grave. And that is what purchases your right standing or righteousness before God. Not anything that you have done, but what has been done on your behalf. And so if you look through the Bible, you can't find like a regular kind of church sermon. You can't find like, hey, here's three ways to have better friendships, and here's three ways to raise your family better. There, there wasn't that. There was one message. And it was the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about. And, and maybe you're like me, the little bit of church experience that I had growing up, I pretty much heard this message, God is good, you are bad, try harder, see you next week. And there was this kind of artificial set of rules that we had to follow to be, quote unquote, a good Christian. Well, first of all, there, there's no such thing as a good Christian, right? We're all wretched, black-hearted sinners. And if you're a Christian, it just means that you've been saved or redeemed, not by anything that you have done. And so kind of the rules where I grew up were, if you're going to be a good Christian, then you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls who do. That was it. That was kind of the mantra of the Southern Baptists in South Carolina. Now, I grew up in Dillon, South Carolina, so I thought, well, that rules out all the girls here. Because even the homecoming queen was, you know, she was, that was her. (laughs) Well, it's not the gospel. And so what we're going to do for, the, for our entire time is that we are going to spend time just talking about that event. Not just what you believe and have faith in, but the early disciples of Jesus. When they were, when they were traveling around Jerusalem proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they were arrested. And the Sanhedrin, this group of religious pe- people, told them, you've got to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. The disciples answered, you do whatever you need to do. But we can't stop talking, not about what we believe. People believe all kind of crazy stuff. But we can't stop talking about what we have seen and heard. And what they had seen and heard was the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it started really um, on the night that he was arrested. It started in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it was an olive grove, and he, <clears throat> he went there often to pray, and he goes there to pray, and he kneels down, and he asks the disciples to pray for him, and they keep falling asleep. So if you fall asleep in church, you know, you'd make a great disciple. And so they keep falling asleep, and Jesus keeps praying, <clears throat> and he's pouring out his heart and his soul because the weight of the sins of the world he knows he's going to have to endure. And so he prays this, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. You know what Jesus is praying there? Um, Lord, if there's any other way to be in a right standing with you, if, if Oprah's right and all the religions just lead to you anyway, then let this cup pass from me. I mean, if we can just obey the commandments, if we can just be good enough, if it's all about church attendance and not my death and resurrection, then let's go with that one. Let me pass on this whole crucifixion, death, and burial thing, and let's just jump right to the happy ending, okay? Let's not do this. You see, Jesus was kind of hoping that, that, that God would say, okay, it's an all-skate, right? Everybody on the dance floor, let's go. doesn't matter what you believe or who you follow. Jesus was kind of hoping for that, but he ends his prayer, but not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. Now, he taught some good moral things, but he also taught some things that if he's not who he said he was, either makes him a lunatic or a liar, because he said he was God. He said he was the way and the truth or the life, okay? He said, so, so either he was lying or he was crazy or he's the Lord. And so that night after he 
prays that prayer and he sweats drops of blood. Then these men show up and he's betrayed by a kiss from his friend Judas, which is just like a normal greeting. And so Judas with these soldiers, they show up. And the reason that he gives them this greeting is to show the soldiers which one is Jesus. Because, you know, it's not like they had Facebook. Like they could just type in Jesus Christ and see his Facebook photo and be like, okay, find the Swedish one among all the Jews. That'll be easy. So they have to identify him. And he's betrayed by his friend. And then he's arrested. And then they put him on trial. And he goes from one trial to the next to the next. And nobody really wants to slam the gavel down and call this innocent man guilty. And so Pontius Pilate brings Jesus in front of this big crowd and says, he says, what shall I do with this man named Jesus? And the crowd, his own people, they cry out, crucify him, kill him. And then Pilate says, but what has he done wrong? I washed my hands of this. You see, that, that same crowd, that happened on a Friday, on Good Friday, That same crowd, that previous Sunday, they also gathered together. And Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a colt or a donkey. And that same group of people got together and they waved palm branches. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everybody's excited and they're waving palm branches and they're singing Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what that crowd thought was going to happen is that Jesus was going to come in, kick the Romans out, and he was going to make the Israelites the true rulers of Jerusalem again, and it was going to be beneficial for the crowd. If you've ever been to a church where you showed up on Palm Sunday and you waved the palms and sang, Hosanna, blessed is he is the name of the Lord, we're never doing that at the church of 1122. And you know why? Because we read more than one chapter of the Bible at a time, all right? Let me tell you what's happening on Palm Sunday. I hate to bust your Palm Sunday bubble, but some of you have been involved in crowds before, and you didn't even know what you were cheering for. Some people in the crowd get together and be like, what's with this? And they're picking up the palm branches. What are we saying? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he's coming down to the Lord. You've done that too at a football game. You went to the football game, and you didn't even like the team. But by the fourth quarter, you're cheering with all the other drunk people. You're like, we won, we won. You didn't win. You're drunk. They won. Okay, you don't even know what you're talking about. That's Palm Sunday. I hate to burst your Palm Sunday bubble. That same crowd on Sunday yells, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. He's betrayed, not just by a friend. He's betrayed by his own people. He is sentenced as guilty, even though he's innocent. And then um, some of the soldiers take him, and they put a bag over his head, and they punch him in the face, and they say, okay, prophet, where did that come from? And then they they lay him over uh, a block in the center of town, and they whip him with a cat of nine tails. If you've seen the passion of the Christ, maybe you have an image of what a flogging looks like. Many people didn't even survive that. It tore the skin, the flesh off of his back. Uh, Historians tell us that sometimes men's ribs would be exposed. The bone of the ribs would be exposed because the cat of nine tails would grab on every time and they would yank the flesh off. And then the Roman soldiers mocked him as king and so they took a purple robe and they put it over those open wounds and they took a crown of thorns and they pressed them down on his skull and then they put a cross on his back and told him to carry it to Golgotha. This place literally means the place of the skull. And outside of the city of Jerusalem, literally thousands of people would be crucified. And so Jesus' physical body couldn't handle it. So they had to grab this guy out of the crowd to help him carry the cross, and they make it to Golgotha. And there would be large crowds gathered around. 
to cuss and curse and scream and spit on and ridicule those criminals who were being crucified. Then the Roman soldiers would take the hands of Jesus and they would nail them to the cross and they would they would put one foot over top of the other foot and they would drive a nail through his feet and then they would erect the cross for everyone to see and then the people would hang there they would hang there to suffer and to die some some people would be killed by the flogging they couldn't survive that some people would die on their way to Golgotha some people would die just by the shock of the nails going through their hands and their feet But the majority of the people that died on a cross died from asphyxiation. That they would be so slunched over because they couldn't hold themselves up that they would essentially suffocate. Sometimes, Josephus, the first century historian, he tells us that sometimes the Roman soldiers who perfected crucifixion, that they would put a seat under the person being crucified so that they could not slunch over. So that they had to sit up and endure the pain and the suffering for a long, long time. And so, on the cross... Jesus says seven things. So that means seven times in order to speak, he had to push up on his nail-pierced feet, take a deep breath, and say something. And so you need to pay attention to somebody's final words. You especially need to pay attention when it is the almighty Son of God who is dying on a cross. That seven times, and if you're a Bible nerd, all the lights on your dashboard ought to be going off, right? Seven is such a significant number. It's the number of completion, the number of days in creation, the number of perfection. And seven times Jesus pushes up and he utters some words. The first thing that he says that you find in Luke chapter 23, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, if you're a Roman soldier, what do you do with this guy, okay? Because if I'm on the cross, I'm not saying, Father, forgive them. Because I'm going to tell you, you cut me off in JTB, and I talk of God. <clears throat> but it's typically not, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's, Father, forgive me for what I'm about to do, and then do it. But not Jesus. Why does he say this first? Because he does not want us to lose sight of why he came. He did not come as a good moral teacher. He did not come just to teach us some, some principles that we could apply to our life to make our lives better. But he came for the forgiveness of sin. That was the point. <clears throat> Maybe you remember what the angel said to the shepherds at Christmas. And they said to the shepherds out in the field, Behold, I bring good news of great joy for all people. For unto us this day in Bethlehem a Savior has been born. Not a life coach. Not a religious figure but a savior, that the angels knew what the gospel teaches, that you and I are sinners in need of a savior, not mistakers in need of a teacher. And so when he's on the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them. That's why he came, for the forgiveness of sin. Maybe you remember his first cousin, John the Baptist. You think you got a crazy cousin? John the Baptist was crazy, all right? He didn't brush his hair. He wore wore weird clothes. He lived out in the woods, and there's nothing wrong with that, but he lived out in the woods, and he taught repent and be baptized. And then one day while he's, while he's baptizing people in the Jordan, dipping, dunking, washing people in the Jordan, then he says these words. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of all the world. And people are looking around like, who is he talking to? And he's talking about his first cousin, Jesus. And Jesus comes out of the crowd. And he stands in the water as the Lamb of God who comes not to just teach good things, not to just be an example, not to just create the WWJD bracelet or Christian music or things like that, 
But he comes for the forgiveness of the sin of all people. And then John baptizes him and the heavens open up and the voice of God speaks and says, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. And so on the cross, on the cross, what Jesus is, he, he wants us to not miss this, that he's a savior, the savior, not just a teacher. You see, because he said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in that moment on the cross, he wants us to know that he is dying for the forgiveness of of our sin. In fact, folks, did you know that's really the point of the church? That the church is supposed to be the messenger of that message. Not do better, not try harder, but you need forgiveness. You need to bow your knee to the King and Savior, and you are offered forgiveness. And then after he says this, he slunches down for I don't know how long. <clears throat> and then he pushes back up, and he has this conversation. It's in Luke Chapter 23, it says this, And they cast lots to divide his garments. That'll be important in a little while. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see, this this thief on the cross next to Jesus, he got it. He understood what was going on here. The first thief, the first thief is saying, All right, Jesus, prove yourself. If you really are God, if you really can do all those miracles, if you can walk on water and turn water into wine and feed all those people with just a you know, little, little snack, then why don't, you, why don't you save yourself? And while you're saving you, why don't you go ahead and save me too? And if you do that, if you get me off the cross, I'll follow you. I'll drink your Kool-Aid. I'll wear your sandals. I'll listen to your podcast, okay? That's fine. Why don't you just do that and prove yourself? If you really are God, then why don't you show up on my behalf? And then the guy on the other side, he's going, bro, what is wrong with you? You don't know who you're talking to here? This is the righteous lamb of God. That what we, what we get on the cross that we deserved, we are here justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then, and then he says this to Jesus. He's asking for a favor. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in that moment, what this man is doing is he is surrendering his life to the Lordship of Christ. What he's not doing is, Jesus, from now on, I'll do everything right. To which Jesus could go, what do you mean from now on? All right, you got about 30 minutes left. That's all you got. And you can't even go anywhere, you know? Where are you going to go? You're crucified. And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, no, you got to go to church. Don't be tough to get to church from the cross. Or you got to be baptized. Hard to get that big old cross into that little tub. He says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus pushes up from the nails, and he wants everyone to know that this is his pure, unadulterated grace. That this man does deserve death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That you and I deserve death. To which some people, you might think, no, pastor, I'm pretty good. Compared to who? 
Your college roommate? Yep, you're awesome, all right? Compared to a perfect and almighty God, you and I deserve death. But the good news of Romans 6.23 is the second half of the verse. But the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus looks at this guy. If anybody in the New Testament makes it into heaven, this guy makes it into heaven. Not because of anything that he has done, but what, by what Jesus is doing on the cross. So he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Did you know that no matter how good you are, you need a savior? Did you know that how, no matter how bad you think you've been, none of us are disqualified? That's the good news of Jesus. And there are some of you, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, you'll kind of go with, yeah, that's not fair. It's not fair at all. Fair is not a biblical value. And praise God. You don't want fair. I don't want fair. My seven-year-old JP, he always talks about fair. If we give, if we give something to Reagan and we don't give something to him, he goes, well, that's not fair. To which, if you're a parent, doesn't that just get on? And I go, oh, you want fair? We can do fair. Let's do fair in our house. Who wants fair? All right, we're doing fair. We're splitting up the mortgage evenly among all four of us. Oh, look, daddy's not the only one home. He's the only one not homeless in the whole house. ha Oh, you want fair? Okay, whoever paid for the Xbox gets to play it. Look, daddy got an Xbox. What do you have, son? Nothing. Get out. No, you don't want fair. You want love and grace, all right? We love you, and we are gracious and merciful to you. Therefore, you get to stay indoors and eat cereal for breakfast, all right? You don't want fair, and you don't want fair either. It's not fair that you get to sit in this comfortable building today to hear the gospel. That's not fair. It's not fair that you get to eat lunch this afternoon. It's not fair that you walked into a closet full of clothes and thought, I got nothing to wear. That is not fair. You don't want fair. You want grace. And God operates in love and grace and not fairness. Fairness isn't it at the Garden of Eden. God's grace was poured out on the cross for me and for you. And this guy knows it. So is the gospel fair? No, it's not fair. It's full of love. You know what the gospel says? Everybody's invited. Everybody gets in the same way. Just because you were born in some country or born in some family, that doesn't mean that you get a head start on anybody else. Everybody gets in through Jesus. And, and the way has already been paid. You see, it's about love, not just fairness. And so he has this conversation with this guy, and then he slumps back down. <clears throat> and then again, I don't, I don't know how long it takes, but... He pushes back up and he says these words. See, he looks out in the crowd and he sees his mom and he sees John, one of the disciples. And, and John, in the Gospel of John, written by John, is called the disciple that Jesus loves most. But in the book that John wrote, that's the only place recorded where he's called that. Okay? <clears throat> so when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a conversation and say, John, you don't get to give yourself your own nickname, man. All right? Hi, I'm Joby, saint of awesome. Nice to meet you. <laughs> but that's what, <clears throat> that's what he does. And so, so Jesus looks out, he sees his mom. He knows he's not going to be on this earth much longer. And so he says this. He says, woman, which, by the way, I just love that, right? That's how Jesus talks to his mama. Woman. And uh, sometimes when I say that to Gretchen, I say, woman. And she doesn't like it. I love, look, baby, I'm just trying to quote the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Okay? I would not suggest that you do that, especially newly married. <clears throat> and he says, woman, behold your son. Talking about John, the disciple. And son, behold your mother. Now, this, this blows my mind. This is crazy. 
So Jesus, while he is suffering and dying, enduring the full wrath of an almighty God for the sin, not his sin, because he had no sin, but for my sin and your sin, so that he could purchase for us our resurrection, while he is enduring that, that he is also concerned about the life, the daily life of his friends and his family. Isn't that crazy? That Jesus, he didn't just hang on the cross and be like, hey, I know life is miserable now, but just hang in there. Because one day I'm going to come and rescue you from this. One day in the sweet by and by, it'll all be better. So I don't care about life on earth now, but I'm going to rescue you from this. And one day out there somewhere, it'll be okay. No, eternal life begins when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Eternal life could begin for you today. Did you know that, that God is deeply concerned with your life right now? with your pains and your struggles and your hurts and your habits and your hang-ups. He is deeply concerned. And even from the cross, he was trying to take care of the needs of people, not just in heaven. Praise God, and I can't wait, but even right here on the earth. And that's why when you pray, did you know you can pray about whatever you need to pray about? And if it's important to you, it's important to God. Why? Because God's deeply concerned about your grades. No, but he's deeply concerned about you. It's important to him because you're important to him. You know how, this this is how God has taught me that. Um, After church, you know, when when our kids are in new gen and they bring you some little piece of art they make and you look at it, are you very impressed by their artwork? Well, you might not be, all right? But that artwork is not that important to me, but my kids are so important to me. I look at it, I go, wow, that's amazing. And I look at your kid's stuff, and I'll be like, your kid's stuff, your kid makes crap. My kids make art, okay? What is wrong with your kid? But look what my kid made. Wow. And we frame it, and I put it in my office, and I marvel at it. Why? Because I got a little Picasso in my house. Do you know how that's how God looks at you? Through the lens of, of Jesus Christ on the cross, he looks at your right now. Your marriage situation, your financial situation, your relational situation, that guilt you're toting around, whatever it is. And he is from the cross. He is concerned, just like he was about his mom and his friend. And so he slumps back down. Now he stays down for a while. The Bible says that for three hours, everything turns dark. And then you get one of the most confusing verses, or at least for me, it was for a long, long time. You get this confusing verse. <clears throat> Jesus pushes back up on, the nail, on his nail-pierced feet, and he says this in Aramaic. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabakani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's confusing, isn't it? For a long time, I thought, well, God, if you're turning your back on your only begotten son in the hour that he needs you most, I don't understand. And the way I've heard that described is, well, since Jesus was enduring the full wrath of God, and since all the sins of all mankind were heaped upon his shoulders, that God cannot look at sin. To which I think, "Uh uh-oh, that's not good news for me. Because there there must be this little black cloud following me around always then, because I've got a lot of sin going on in my life. And what about that part in Matthew 28 where Jesus is going to say, and lo, I am with you to the very ends of the age. So God, are you with us or are you turning your back on us? Which one is it? And so that's always been very troublesome for me. And in fact, I heard from, from one guy at our church that that was the very verse that really, that, that was his primary hang up. 
How could I love a God that would turn his back on his own son like that? I just don't understand that. What does that mean? Now, did Christ endure the full wrath of an almighty God? Yes and amen. It's called substitutionary atonement. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But he did it out of love. Love. Well, Jesus was a rabbi, first century rabbi. And rabbis, um, they had four levels of exegesis or interpretation of the scripture. The second level of interpretation was this thing called a remez. Say remez. <clears throat> All right, now say it like it matters. Remez. remez. There you go. It's a Hebrew word, and it means hint. Hint. So sometimes what rabbis would do is when they wanted to get their students to the right answer, they would give them a remez, or they would give them a hint. That they would give them the first part of a verse, or they would give them the first verse in a pericope, which just means a section of Scripture, knowing that it's a hint that everybody would know what the rest of that verse or what the rest of that section of Scripture said. So when, when Jewish kids would go to school, when they were like in the equivalent of the first grade, they would show up on the first day, and their teacher or their rabbi would give them a tablet. If you're under 20, this was not electronic, okay? It was like chalk and a slate, all right? They would give them this tablet, and the tablet would be covered in honey. And honey was a luxury, and honey was rare, and this the tablet was covered in honey. And kids had probably heard of honey before, but they had never seen it or tasted it. And then the rabbi would say, okay, eat your fill. And the kids, you can just imagine a class full of first graders with just honey everywhere. They're licking the tablet, and it's on their hair, and it's on their neighbor. And it's just, they're sticky, and they are loving it. This is the greatest day of their life. And then the rabbi would say something like, just as your tongue craves honey, may your soul crave the very word of God. And so from that point on, really for the rest of their lives, they would memorize the scriptures. And they would memorize all of the first five books of the Bible, and they would memorize the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms is actually, uh, it's really, it's like a a mixtape, if you're my age, uh, or a a playlist, if you're younger than me. And it's just, Psalms are, are greatest hits of praises and songs to God. And so everybody would know that. And so Ramez is a hint. It would be sort of like, if I go... Ding, 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 ding. All right, if you're over 40, you go, pressure, right? And if you're under 40, you go, stop, collaborate, and listen. Ice is back with a brand new edition, something, right? You know the whole thing. I do. I hadn't heard it since eighth grade, but I can do the whole deal. It's like a romance. It's like a hint. It just gets your mind going. Like, if you're my age, if I go, I like big, right? It just goes there. You might need to repent at the altar time at the end for knowing that song, but that's fine. <clears throat> that's what a remez is, just kind of a mental warm-up. So Jesus pushes up on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he slunches back down, and every Jewish person in that crowd begins to sing or quote Psalm 22. If you've got your Bible, go to Psalm 22. Grab one in front of you, open it up right in the middle. You'll be really close to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, I believe when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he was giving those people a remez or a hint. He can't push up on the nails and quote the whole thing. So he just gets them started. And I want to read the whole thing to you. Psalm 22 was written by King David, like David and Goliath, that David. It was written by him. And it says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. To you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus wanted, to know, wanted the crowd to know that he is the one that their spiritual forefathers talked about. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So just imagine if you're standing there that day at Calvary, and Jesus starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you begin to go through Psalm 22 in your mind because you know the words of the psalm. And about the time you get to this part, all who see me mock me, and you look around and everybody in the crowd is cussing and jeering at Jesus. And just as you hit verse 8 in your mind, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. You hear a Roman soldier cry out, you saved others, save yourself. And you begin to think, oh no, what's happening here? Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. There is only one person in the history of humanity that that line can be true of. And that is Jesus. Like, no one is born a Christian. There's no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. A Christian is the man or woman that has surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ. And just because you were born in church, and some of you literally were born in church. Your mom was playing the organ, and out you came on the altar with your hands up, all right? God bless you. That's not my story. But that didn't make you a Christian, right? Any more than sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. That's not how it works. It's not from the outside in. It's from the inside out. The only person who's ever walked this earth that God has been their God from the day of their birth is Jesus because he was perfect verse 11 be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help many bulls encompass me strong bulls of Bashan surround me they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion and then he says I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Some of you may know that um, according to the Gospels and the first century historian Josephus, that the way Jesus was confirmed to be dead is that the Roman soldiers, they were ready to go. Remember the sky's black. They're, they're ready to get out there. So a lot of times what they'd do is they would go up to men being crucified and they would break their legs so that they could not push up and take a breath anymore and they would asphyxiate or suffocate faster. But when they got to Christ, instead of breaking his legs, they took a spear and they shoved it under his ribs and it pierced his heart and blood and water flowed. So imagine if you're there at Golgotha and you're going through Psalm 22 and you see them pierce his heart and out of, his, out of this wound on his side flows blood and water. And you begin to think, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melted within my breast. My strength is dried up, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust. What if that were the time where Jesus cries out the next words, I thirst? What if when the moment where he pushes up and he screams out, I thirst, you were beginning to remember Psalm chapter 22, written a thousand years before Christ was crucified, that this one would suffer, and that his tongue would be so dry that it sticks to the roof of his mouth. 
And then you would look around and the Roman soldiers would grab this sponge and they would dip it in, in what the Bible calls sour wine or wine vinegar. And, and, and historians, they kind of argue about exactly what that is, but the one thing that they all agree on is that the sponge that would have been used, the only sponge that would have been around that day would have been a sponge that they would use to clean the blood and the urine and the feces off of the dead bodies from the cross. And that to mock him, they would take that sponge and dip it with sour sour wine and they would shove it into the face of the one that was giving his life for them and then the psalm keeps going it says for dogs encompass me a company of evil doers encircle me they have pierced my hands and feet now this will blow your mind the holy spirit inspired king david to write psalm 22 about 1000 bc Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in 300 B.C. This text predates crucifixion as a means of execution by 700 years. So when David's writing these words, there is no form of persecution or execution that would pierce your hands and your feet. And then the Persians invented it in about 300 B.C. and then the Romans perfected it starting about 30 years before Jesus was born. And imagine standing there that day, going through Psalm 22, and there is the nail-pierced one who claimed to be the very Son of God. And you think, oh my goodness, maybe this is what King David was talking about in Psalm 22. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. We just read in in Luke 23, that they cast lots to divide his garment. Imagine standing there that day, and everything that you memorized in Psalm 22 is happening around you. And he goes on, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. By the way, a dog was a slang term for a Roman soldier or a Gentile. The empire of Rome, was it, it, was, it was hundreds of years away from from beginning when David wrote these words. So deliver me from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. One of the primary symbols of the Roman Empire was a lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. The gospel went first to the Jews. You have rescued me from the horn. Oh, I read that. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus, every Sabbath, was in the temple or the synagogue. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that when you and I sin, God does not hide his face from us. But he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of God. So when you sin, you don't have to run from the Almighty God. In Christ, we are allowed to run to Him. That when He sees your sin, that He he doesn't turn from you. He sends His Son to endure the suffering and shame that our sin should should produce in us. And He has heard when we cried to Him. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The reason, part of the reason that Jesus is 
is getting the folks there to go through Psalm 22 is because he's sharing the gospel. He's letting the people know that what we're talking about here, folks, is not just another person uh, who is claiming or claimed to be a criminal being put to death, but we're talking about hearts forever, that the gospel goes out to anyone who would believe and trust in Christ. And then, and then he begins to shift gears. He wants the people at, at the cross, at Calvary, at Golgotha to not just be worried about themselves, but, but to begin to look outward. And he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. That, that Jesus here is linking Psalm 22 in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. That as a church, as Christians, as disciples, what we're supposed to do is to go into all the nations, all people groups. And that we are to make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. That that's what we're supposed to do. And King David wrote about it a thousand years before that. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And then, and then of all things, Look what Jesus wants us to understand from the cross. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. He's talking about those that are not born yet. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness. Not your own righteousness. Not you do better so that you can earn your relationship with God. Every time the Bible uses the word righteousness, it means a right standing before God. The Bible teaches us that your own righteousness, that my righteousness are like filthy rags before God, that you'll never be good enough. But what Jesus wants us to know from Psalm 22 is that we would proclaim his righteousness. Not that we've got to do more, but it has been done on the cross for our benefit. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Try to get your mind around this for a second, that from the cross, Jesus is thinking of you this Easter Sunday, and me this Easter Sunday, that the gospel would go out to a people yet unborn, that's us. And then he says that he has done it. Literally in the Hebrew, literally in the Hebrew, that means that it has been done or it is finished. And then the last thing Jesus says on the cross, he pushes himself up and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit because he wanted, to know, he wanted us to know that he is still in control, that he is still sovereign, that this did not happen to him, but he is willfully and willingly enduring the scorn and shame of the cross to give his spirit up on our behalf. And then he pushes up and with a loud voice cries out, it is finished. And in that moment, the Bible says that there is, a, there is an earthquake in Jerusalem and the temple is shaken and there is a curtain, there is a curtain that separates this little special room in the temple that represents the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant is there, the law is there, but normal people like me and you, sinful people like me and you are not allowed to go into that special room. There is separation between God and people. But when Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of all the earth, when he dies on the cross, when he says it is finished, then that curtain is torn from the top to the bottom. And we are, we are invited into the very presence of God. So just imagine, imagine if you're there that day and he rises up and he says, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you begin to go through Psalm 22. And you're looking around and you're going, oh my goodness. It's exactly as David said it would be. That he's encompassed by a great crowd of people. That they're hurling insults at him. That they're dividing up his clothes. That his hands and his feet, that they've been pierced. That his heart has been punctured. And then right when you get to the end, it has been done or it is finished. You hear Jesus push up and say, it is finished. In that moment you go, what is finished? What's finished? It is finished. The sacrificial system is over. There are no more sacrificing of goats to cover our sin for one year until the next day of atonement because it's not a goat who has been slain, but the almighty son of God, the just and the justifier by his mercy and grace have poured out his perfect blood to cover our sin forever and ever. It is finished. What does that mean? That means that the idea of religiosity is over. It's not about you trying to earn your relationship with God anymore. It's not about your church attendance appeasing an angry God. It is finished. It means that your sin is finished. That, that the pain of sin can be done. It means that guilt is finished. You don't have to carry that guilt around anymore because he carried it to the cross and he nailed it to the tree. So when you lay it down, lay it down. It means condemnation is finished. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's over. It means religion as you knew it is finished. It's about abiding in a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father based on not what you do, but by what Jesus has done for you. It means your addiction is finished. That that substance is not your Lord anymore, but Jesus Christ is your Lord. It means hopelessness is finished. Because yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because his rod and his staff comfort you. You know that you can hope for that day when there are no more tears and the streets are gold and and the poorest among us eat whatever they want. That there is hope in this world in Jesus. That it is finished. That means that you don't pay for your sin anymore. That substitutionary atonement has covered your sin. That Jesus was the substitute to pay for your sin and mine. Not you be a better version of you. It's finished that you think God's gonna love the future version of you as soon as you're a better husband or a better wife. That's finished. The old things are dead and there's a new creation. It is finished. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us so that we could be made his righteousness. So it's all finished. But you know what he didn't say? He didn't say that he was finished. No, no, no. It was finished. The sacrificial system's finished. Sin's finished. Guilt's finished. Death is finished. All of that is finished. But he didn't say he was finished because he had more to do. The Bible says that he takes the keys of life and death. He takes them to the very pit of hell and he puts death in his grave. And then three days later, he resurrects from the grave. Why? Because he's not finished. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And if he brought you to church today, then he's not finished with you. And the same power of the Holy Spirit that brought Jesus back from the tomb can bring you this day from death to life. He is not finished with you. I know you. some of you think you're so good you don't need him. He's not finished with you. You've got to surrender. You've got to surrender. 
Look, Christianity is not a crutch, a little bit of you and a little bit of Jesus. It's a stretcher. You are dead to yourself, and he totes you into a new life. And then some of you think you've screwed up so bad that you've disqualified yourself. Well, guess what? It is finished. That way of thinking is finished, but he's not finished. He's not finished with you. Because on the third day, the stone was rolled away, and he walked out of the grave. And this day, that same Jesus that was alive that we read about in the scriptures is not finished with you and your family. He's not finished with our church. There is more that he wants to accomplish. And by his cross, he paid for our sin. And by his resurrection, he secured our future because he's not finished. Amen? And the best news of all, if you don't know him yet, is he's not finished with you. The empirical evidence that what he said was true, that he's the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him, the empirical evidence is that he died on a cross and three days later there was an empty tomb. And he's working in you right now. And he's not finished with you right now. And I know you're aggravated by it, okay? I know you just said you'd come with your wife you just keep make it okay for Easter I know and I know you walked in here going I don't care what that bald headed dude says I ain't getting into this I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid and now you're going dang it and it's just stirring in there alright that's not me that's the power of the Holy Spirit the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave he's coming after you he's coming after you now with love and mercy and grace because he loves you he demonstrated his love for you in this that while you were still a sinner that Christ died for you and he's not finish with you and today today could be your day today could be the day that you by the power of the cross and the resurrection cross over from death to life not to do better but to walk in the freedom of forgiveness in a relationship with him and I want to give you the opportunity to experience what it means to be his disciple to surrender your life to him this very day would you please bow your head if you would say, that's me, that's me, I've never heard the gospel before. I thought church, or being a Christian was about church attendance and about being a certain type of person. Well, you're wrong. Or some of you thought that, that you were too bad to ever be loved by God. That's wrong. The truth is, is that God so loved the world, and that includes you, that he gave his only begotten son to suffer a sinner's death on a cross that he did not deserve so that we could receive his inheritance that we have not earned. And that's why it's grace. And if this very day you are ready, ready to admit that you're a sinner, that you believe that Christ suffered and died for your sin and was resurrected to new life on the third day, and today you are ready to confess him as Lord and Savior, raise your hand where you are and say, Pastor, that is me. I surrender my life to you. And a hand in the air does not save you. You just talk to God. Whatever he's put on your heart, you just tell him. You say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not good enough. Or I know I hadn't been too bad for you to not love me. That you believe in Christ and what he has done on your behalf. And you confess him as Lord. And the reason we raise our hands in this place is because it's a symbol of saying, I surrender. So if you've got your hand up, you put it high. And you just pray. You just talk to your heavenly father. And in this very moment, the Holy Spirit, the power of God that resurrected Jesus from the dead is bringing you into new life. Your sins are forgiven. That it is finished. And he 
is not finished with you. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you love us because, and, and because you love us that we can love you back. God, we thank you for the cross and for the resurrection. God, for the disciples, the believers in this room, Lord, help us not walk in fear and condemnation, but walk in the freedom that you purchased for us at the cross. And God, for the, the many that you have saved this very day, God, I, I thank you so much that you would come after them, that you would seek after them in love, that you would draw them unto themselves. And God, I, I thank you for this day of salvation. And God, our church rejoices with the angels in heaven because someone who was dead has come to life. Someone who was blind now sees. God, we love you. God, we thank you so much that it is finished. Our good works are done. And what you have done on the cross will endure forever. Thank you that you are not finished with us. And we pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, if you would please stand to your feet. We respond to the gospel around here. God initiates, we respond. We respond by, if you're a regular, taking our tithes and offerings to the boxes around the room. We respond by coming to the altar and laying those dead things at the foot of the cross and you leave them there dead. And we respond by joining our voices together to sing a love song to the one who loves us, Savior King. Let us respond.